First attempt, chapter 18, 10 through 11. Somebody want to read those two verses? Who's got 10 and 11 in chapter 18 wants to read it? All right, Rich. Upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped from his presence twice. All right. So David is doing what? Why is he playing the harp? All right. Saul has had this evil spirit come upon him before, and his servant said, you need to have some guy come in and play some music for you so it'll calm you down. What did they say about music? It soothes the savage beast. And Saul was behaving like a savage beast, and so they sought out a young man, and there was a guy just happened to be a guy there that said, hey, I know a guy that plays really well. He's also a good warrior. And they went and got David. That's the guy he was talking about. Brought him into Saul's court. So David's been playing the harp for Saul specifically because he's had this evil spirit come upon him. And David's music would calm that spirit. But So here's David playing as he has before in Saul's presence. And what is it that Saul has? A spear. So here's, if you're ever going to play in a band anywhere, here's a good lesson for you. If there's anybody in the audience with a spear, don't do it. That's, that's the Bible message for today. Saul gets upset and he flings that spear and he misses David. And you would think David would get a clue. But this is going to happen again. And I don't say that uh, to David's discredit. It's just this is the way it's recorded for us that we understand this is not the last time that this is going to happen like this. All right. Again, in chapter 18, uh, Shannon, you had your hand up. If you wouldn't mind reading 17 to 19. My older daughter, Merib, I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my family or my family's clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. How sorry do you have to be to think, Here's what I'll do to kill this guy. I'll offer him my daughter's hand in marriage. <laughs> and he'll go out and fight battles to that end to, to gain her as his wife. And he'll be killed in battle. That's, that's Saul's plan. It's an indirect attempt. You know, when you throw a spear, that's pretty direct. But this time, he's going to be a little more uh, sly. And so... His mind is, his thought process is, I'll get him going after the Philistines and they will kill him. And so he offers his daughter. What does David say about that? He's really nobody to become the king. I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. I'm not worthy to marry the king's daughter. But think about it. Who was Saul before he was anointed by Samuel? 
nobody. He was nobody. But now he is anointed. And in David's mind, that changes everything. It doesn't seem to impact his thinking about himself. Because he's also now the anointed of God. But even as the anointed of God, he doesn't see himself fit to be the son-in-law of the guy who was anointed first and who was actually serving as king. That's the heart of David, the humility and the mindset that makes him a man after God's own heart. All right. So Saul tries to use the Philistines in this case. Here's another indirect attempt. Who wants to take 20 through 29? Anybody feel like reading that? All right. PJ, is that PJ? Welcome back, girl. Glad to have you. Uh, we would imagine that PJ would always volunteer to read. Ready? Yes. Okay. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought, I'll give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, It is trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law. Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul report to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. So Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him, how do you pronounce her name? Michael? I call her Michael. Michael, okay. Michael, his son, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael's son's daughter left him, and Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. So, attempt number three. <clears throat> Indirectly, he's, he's going to try the same idea of getting the Philistines to kill David for him. And initially he said, I'm going to offer him my daughter and he'll go out as, as my soldier and he'll get killed and now he's saying well very more specifically I, I want trophies from your battles with the Philistines and David how many did Saul ask for? what did David come back with? 200 always delivering more than required that's David so he comes back very much alive and becomes Saul's son-in-law. If this were a movie, this is where we would say the plot thickens. But this isn't a movie. This is history. This is what happened. 
And we might think to ourselves, well, if you're the anointed of God, isn't God going to take care of you and make sure that no bad thing happens to you? But imagine you're the anointed of God, but the one who is also the anointed of God, who is your king, and now your father-in-law is trying to kill you and has been at it for some time. So attempt number four. A more direct attempt. Who wants to take that one verse? Chapter 19, verse 1. Anybody want one verse? Jamie. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David. Well, Well, Jonathan Jonathan took a great liking to David. What about everybody else? Doesn't seem like anybody else was intent on gaining any clout in Saul's side or any reward. So Saul says, I want this guy dead. (laughs) Go kill him. That's pretty direct, even if he's not doing it himself. All right, chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. Any readers? I'll read this one. When there was war again, David went out, fought with the Philistines, and defeated them and with great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. You think any red flags were going off in David's mind? Going to go play for Saul? Ooh, he's got a spear. Got another spear. So he plays. I don't know if he had one eye on his harp and one eye on Saul. (laughs) Or if Saul's just a bad shot. Or if it was the providence of God. We don't know what it was that kept David from being speared. But he wasn't speared. And here is the fifth attempt Saul makes on David's life. Very directly with a spear. I, I think I would do that as well. What does Romans 8.28 say? Yes, he works all things together for good. So when he says all things, we would expect that the good would work for our good. But all things means even the things that we would consider bad. Work together for our good. So how does how does this work together for David's good? Is is there any point of view that would say this worked out very well for David to have Saul throw a spear at him? Okay. Right. What does this prove to us and everybody else who reads it about David's character? He's going to do what's right in spite, in spite of Saul trying to kill him. What does Jesus say when somebody slaps you on the right cheek? Turn the other cheek. And this is what David's doing even before Jesus taught that sermon. Turning his... Other cheek to the Lord's anointed. 
Chapter 19, verse 11. I call it direct because he's sending guys to go right to David's house and kill him. It says, then Saul sent messengers to David's house. He's, he's tried to kill him with a spear twice. He's tried to get him killed with the Philistines. Nothing's working, so he sends messengers to David's house to watch him. Wait, wait a minute. If it's David's house, who, was, who else's house is this? This is his daughter's house. Hey, young lady, I'm going to come over and kill your husband. What else are you guys doing tonight? So, <laughs> in order to put him to death in the morning, but Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. And you can read the rest of this. What does Michael do to keep David from being discovered by her dad? She takes this image and puts it in the bed, takes some goat hair and puts it up there. Not sure of the details, but apparently it's enough of a ruse so that the the guys come in and they look, oh yeah, somebody's in the bed. Looks like somebody's in the bed. Ah, That looks like hair up there where his head ought to be. Okay, he's sick. Uh, we'll go back and tell Saul. And by that time, David's got plenty of time to get out of Dodge. So the assassin ploy does not work. Attempt number seven. This is pretty interesting. 18 to 24. Anybody want to do a little reading? Chapter 19, 18 to 24. PJ again. Now, now I don't want to take anything away from PJ. Anybody else want to read? All right, nobody's going to take it from you, PJ, so it's up to you. David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. It was told Saul, behold, David is at, saying, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. When they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messenger of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Rome and came as far as the large well that is in Sikhu. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. He proceeded there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore they say, Is Saul also among the prophets? Was it? Was it? Oh, yeah, down through the end of the chapter, verse 24. So once more, Saul says, all right, you guys, go get David. I want him dead. And what happens to them? By the way, where are they going? Now, you can read about the name of the place. Pronounce it how you want. Nioth, but the significant thing is who's there? Samuel is there. Samuel is the one who anointed Saul to be king. Samuel is the one who anointed David to be king. I don't know that Saul knows that, anything about that yet, but Samuel is the one that Saul would look to for spiritual guidance. And here he's sending his his emissaries to kill David. 
to, to find David where Samuel is. And when they get there, what happens with those emissaries, those messengers, those would-be assassins, I would say? They started prophesying. Wouldn't you like to know what they were saying as they were prophesying? Because that's what prophecy is. You're saying something. You're a mouthpiece for God. Who knows what they were saying? It's not recorded for us. So those first group doesn't work. What happens next? Send some more. Send some more. How hard-hearted is Saul? All these attempts so far have failed. Direct attempts, throwing spears twice, sending messengers, even going to his daughter's house to, to murder her husband. Nothing's working. Tries to get him killed by his enemies. The Philistines doesn't work. He comes back with a bigger bounty than he even asked for. And now he's sending messengers right into the presence of Samuel, the fellow he considers the most spiritual leader Israel has. And his messengers fail in their attempts to take David, but they do wind up becoming prophets. So what does Saul do next? He goes himself. Preston? I think that the passage in the New Testament where God talks about giving people up to a reprobate mind, would you think that that's what's happened to Saul at this point? It, it, it looks like very much that. That's Romans chapter 1 where people give themselves over to worship something besides God. Who's, who's Saul worshiping now? Himself. He's all wrapped up in himself. He started out very humbly, but he's become very self-centered. So, yes. So whenever... Samuel anointed Saul. And, of course, you know, Samuel was upset because of, you know, they wanted a king, and God said, they haven't rejected you, they rejected me. Right. And then he tells them, you know, well, he'd give them a king, but this is what's going to happen, you know. He'll take your women, he'll have them, and doing all this stuff, you'll be like slaves to them. And they said they want to be like the rest of the nations around us, appoint us a king. You know, and, and he tells them what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, here they are, you know. And I just, it's just amazing to watch this play out. What he said was going to happen, and then the things that fall. Right. It's, so, so what, I guess the question, I said I had a question. I was reading over that when he said what was going to happen back in uh, the 8th chapter of Samuel there, about what was going to happen. And, and I keep thinking about why. Yeah, they said, we will be as slaves. We'll go ahead and we'll, 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 we'll be like the rest of the nation. Right. We'll be as slaves to the king, but we want him to go out and fight for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we want him to fight our battles. So do you think maybe that that's part of David's mindset, that why he won't kill the anointed of God? Or is it just because he's David and that's just his mentality? I'm trying to kind of correlate what was said with, you know. When you read through... When you read through David's Psalms, you see a a man who thinks very deeply, very intimately about God. And to me, in David's mind, anything that is connected with God is sacred. It's holy. It doesn't matter how Saul is behaving. In David's mind, he is, he has that uh, quality of 
the sacredness of sanctification on him because he is God's anointed. David will repeat this several times in the following chapters. I'm not going to lift my hand against God's anointed. That's you just don't do that. Even though God's anointed is trying to kill him, he's, he's not going to retaliate. God is the one who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And David, whether or not he's read that or heard that, he seems to understand this, this is the way it works. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Who would write that down for us? Solomon would be the one to write that down for us. And where does Solomon tell his son he got his Proverbs, his wisdom? Solomon in Proverbs tells his son as he's dictating these Proverbs to him, I learned this from my dad. Because you read those, oh, Solomon was wise. And then Solomon, wait a minute, I got this stuff from my dad. I got this stuff from David. And so David is not trusting his own heart. He's trusting in God. And he's setting an example for us that even in all this difficulty, even when circumstances look like you need to take this guy out and nobody would blame you for that, David says, I ain't going to do it. He's the Lord's anointed. And that makes him different from everyone else. So I, I read about David. I read about these interactions he has with Saul. And I think, what kind of self-control does he have? Who who can have self-control like that except somebody who has a confidence that doesn't come from within himself? Saul's confidence, well, he didn't have any. He was scared. And what does God continually tell us all through the Bible? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear is the antithesis of faith. And David lived by faith. He did not live by fear. Two very different men, two very different mindsets, two very different hearts, two very different kinds of behavior, and two very different outcomes. And we, today, 3,000 years later, we look at this, we read this, and we go, wow, Saul was a, he was a goober. Well, <laughs> but David, wow, David, he was, he was someone to emulate. I want to be like David. Yes. Sure. Um, so we're seeing all these messengers going to kill David. And they're thwarted by God. Miraculously, it looks like to me, because they're going to kill him. And then all of a sudden, not only do they not kill him, they start prophesying. Right. And then Saul goes himself, himself going to kill David. And then God thwarts that miraculously. And then all of a sudden, Saul's prophesying right. by the Spirit of God. And takes all those clothes off and yeah. goes naked the whole thing. Okay? Now, I'm seeing a lot of free will thwarted right there. Right. It's like, okay, here's your free will, but I'm taking it from you. You're going to do this instead. Now, that's a miraculous thing. And we see that in the Old Testament. Now, this is our schoolmaster. Is that something we can pray at times? Can we say, look, you know, here's my free will, and here's what I might do in these situations. Can you, will you stop me sometimes? You know, will you keep me from saying this? Will you keep me? Right. Will you help me preach the gospel when I'm one of hold back, you know, in certain situations and stuff. Can we ask God to thwart our free will at times? I, I, I think so. I think it's, it's, a, it's something we turn over to God, as you seem to be saying. And you think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Two things. What was the first thing he prayed? The first thing he prayed was, 
Let this cup pass from me. Now, was that his will or not? That was his will. Father, I want this cup to pass from me. I don't want to go through this. But what was his second prayer? Not my will, but yours. God did not have to write that down for us that it happened. That was between him and his son. But he wrote it down. And he put it down for all history that you and I could read that. And we could say, yes, I have free will. But I can offer my free will to God. Say, Lord, I I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. Which is what we just quoted from the Psalms. Do not lean on your own heart or your own understanding. But trust the Lord with all your heart. So it's a... It's like so many things where it's hard to see where the lines are drawn. But when you follow God, you find yourself being led in the most right way possible under whatever circumstances you are in. And that's why I think it's always wise to ask God when we're making decisions. Which way do I go? What do I do? It doesn't matter if you're, you're buying a house or buying a car, if you're making a friendship, a relationship, If you're thinking about uh, where to go to work, where to apply for a job, anything you're doing in life, talk to God about it and surrender your will to his. Because he might choose something for you that you wouldn't choose for yourself. But what do you think the outcome is going to be? Is there anything in your life you're glad you didn't get your way about? You remember being a teenager? And somehow when you become a teenager, magically, now you know everything. And you don't need your parents because they're, they're dumb and they're fuddy-duddies anyway. Now, now I know everything and I can guide my own self, mom and dad. And then you find out later, oh, wait a minute, hmm, maybe I wasn't right about that. These attempts on David's life set the tone for the rest of 1 Samuel. David's going to be pursuing David out in the wilderness. And there are going to be opportunities. David has to kill Saul. And David does not do it. This, at the cave of of En Gedi, David's got 600 men and they're hiding in this cave. And Saul comes in the cave not knowing they're there. And he comes in to relieve himself. And while he's doing that, David cuts off part of his garment. Saul didn't know it. Saul goes out and David comes to the mouth of the cave and holds up and says, Hey, Saul, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't do it. And Saul says, You're a better man than I am, and David is safe for now. Is that the end of it? It's not the end of it. Saul continues to pursue him. And so David goes down into Saul's camp at night. And he's standing there over Saul while Saul sleeps. And he has Saul's spear in his hand. And his captain, David's army captain, says, thrust him through. And David, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. So they take the spear, they take a bottle of water, and they, and they leave camp. And later they show those things to Saul. And Saul says again, wow, you're, you're a better man than me. I did want to show you, however, this is one of the places we got to go while we were in Israel. Sherry, any of these pictures look familiar? Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) Well, there's a map 
of the Dead Sea, and you can see right in the middle on the west side of the Dead Sea is En Gedi. This is where David fled from Saul. <clears throat> that picture is the ascent. We're actually that's that's looking down towards the Dead Sea to make the ascent. You'd be going actually the the other direction. You'd be coming towards whoever's taking the picture. I think that was me, but I don't remember exactly who who that might have been. But that's the Dead Sea out there. Um, it looks calm and placid simply because it's too heavy to move. It's about thirty percent minerals, but that's where this was, and it's an arid, dry, desert place. And that's another view of it. You see the steel handrail and the steps going down or going up. From this perspective, they're going down. But this is the area and the place where uh, David was supposed to have found this cave and hidden out from Saul. Of course, there's Liam, our grandson, standing in one of those places on that trail. This is the sign telling you they're going up to David's waterfall, which is right next to the cave. And there's the, uh, the ibex on the sign, which is the symbol for the Israeli National Parks. And lo and behold, there's an ibex laying in the shade. Guess what kind of a tree that is? That's an acacia tree. And that's what they made, or I, th I think acacia is also called shatim wood. That's what they made the uh, Ark of the Covenant from. That's what God said to use, acacia wood. Made a lot of things out of acacia wood. And there's an ibex. Got to see some of those. They just, they're just they like deer in the sense that you never know where you're going to see one. You're, you're looking up on the hills and on the rocks looking for an ibex. And lo and behold, oh, there's one standing by that boulder next to the road. <laughs> that's the way they are. Yes. About leaning on God and, and David and someone that we want to emulate, and that how God blessed him and he wouldn't raise his hand against Saul because he was anointed of God. I'm thinking about a passage in Proverbs three, five, and six where it talks about you know uh, trust in the Lord, lean on the Lord, and He'll make your path straight. Right. So I have a problem with that, and maybe this passage that we're talking about would help me understand that because David did so many things wrong right. but yet he made us pass straight where we have we were talking about uh, freedom of will it, does that scripture I know it's, it's in the Old Testament it's, 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 it's there for us to learn it's, it's a schoolmaster for us but does that mean that we go ahead and live life and make our decisions but lean on God and that he'll make our path straight or do we need to Everything that we think about, ask God and pray about it and make sure that every decision we make, we, we talk to him first. You see what I'm saying? Is sure. I, well, I think I do. I, I think I see what you're saying. And the, the deal is with life and with God, it's a relationship and it's a constant relationship. And if you have a relationship with somebody, it's not something that happens right like that. It, it It's ongoing. It keeps going. And you'll... Be together with them for a weekend, and maybe that weekend doesn't do very well. There's the, the weather's bad, and things don't turn out like you planned, and you don't have as much fun, or it wasn't as pleasant. But, but you're there with them, and then the next weekend, things go great. Boy, you have a fantastic time, and you look back on both those memories, two different times, but it's, it's, it's ongoing. And you might get in a fight. You might get in a fuss and disagree, and then you come back. You know, I think I'm, I might have been wrong about that. And you come back. 
That's what a relationship is. It's a dynamic thing that keeps on going. And so God had a relationship with David, and he has a relationship with each one of us, and he wants it to keep on going no matter what happens. And if you're a a parent or a grandparent, some of you in here old enough to be grandparents and parents, uh, you, you know what that's like. You're raising children, and your love for them never stops. If they misbehave, you don't, well, I'd love them. I don't love them as much today as I loved them yesterday. Now, you might not enjoy them as much because today's the day you've got to take discipline in hand. But the love is still there. The relationship is still there. What you want out of that is still there. And no matter what your children do, when they come back to you with tears in their eyes and they want to hug you and be close to you, that's, that's what you're looking for. And that's who David was. No matter what he did that was wrong, he would always come back to God with a repentant heart. And that's why he would write in the 51st Psalm. We'll go to the 51st Psalm and and see what he says here. I think this is an excellent contrast with what we're learning on Wednesday nights in the Leviticus class. Uh, Mike's been talking a lot about the sacrifices and the work of the priests and a separation from things of the world to make uh, make the Israelites holy. So you, you read that, and then you read this in the 51st Psalm. Verse 14, Psalm 51, verse 14. Delight or deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You were not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David figured it out. The sacrifices were part of the law. That was, And if you read what Paul writes about the law in Romans, he said the law was given to show us one thing, And that is how bad we are, how sinful we are. That was the purpose of the law. And if you're thinking about what Leviticus teaches, how many times would you have had to, oh man, I got to head back to the priest again, take a sacrifice to the priest for my sin. Just over and over and over is is what you would have had to do according to the law. This have the cognizance of how bad they were. Exactly. It has to be shown. So, when, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, laws are not made for a righteous man. Why don't you have to make laws for a righteous man? Because he's going to do what's right. You don't have to tell a righteous man you're not allowed to steal. He's not going to steal. You're not allowed to lie. He's not going to lie if he's a righteous man. You're not allowed to murder people. For the most point, he's not going to murder people. <laughs> depending on how his family's like. But no, he's not going to murder anybody. You don't have to make a law for that for a righteous man, but you have to make laws for people who are not righteous. And so the rest of us who are trying to be righteous, we look at all those laws and we say, I'm never going to make it. Look at all the laws that have been made because of sin. And I know I'm sinful. I am not a good person. I'm trying to be good. I want to be good. But I am not good. I won't be good. Only Jesus is good. And that's why faith is so important. 
He says, put your faith in me and I'll count it as righteousness. That's what Romans chapter 4 is all about. And he goes back to talk about who in regard to that? Talk about Abraham. Was Abraham righteous? No. But what did Abraham have? Abraham had faith in God. And so Paul teaches us that God counted that faith as righteousness. That's what he's doing with David all the time. What about Saul? Where is Saul's faith? It's not in God. So Saul has no righteousness. The relationship is not there. If Saul were coming to God, God would be coming to Saul. That's what James says. Draw near to God and he will do what? He will draw near to you. Think about that. The one who spoke the universe into existence says, if you draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. It also says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We think about the devil as so powerful and mighty and wicked and evil. Well, he is wicked and evil, but he's not powerful and mighty. You can resist him and put him to flight. You can draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And this is David's life. And this is why all these ups and downs with, with him that we'll read about later, it's, it's going to work out in the end because he keeps coming back to God. And that's what you and I have to do all the time. Run back to God. Run back to God. Just ask Don. This is what we talk about all the time. Keep running back to God. Keep going back to God. No matter. Charles? There have been times in my life where I have felt far away from God. And I'll be reading about David and, and I'll, I'll be legitimately frustrated that someone who has committed such crimes was so close to God. And it wasn't until years later that I thought about that and I, I had the same thought in the opposite way. I thought, how, how wonderful that somebody who had committed such terrible crimes could be so close to God. That if Absolutely. there's hope for him, what, what hope does that mean for me? Exactly. And I, I think about these things and to me, the Bible is just the right size because God has written into it the very things we need to read, the things we need to hear, to get our, our minds right and our hearts right, to see that I don't have to be perfect. I just have to be faithful. That's the way it is in a marriage. You, you can't be a perfect husband. You can't be a perfect wife, but you can be a faithful husband. You can be a faithful wife. And that's what makes all the difference. And it's the same with a relationship with God. When, you, when you're preaching and you say, I just want another paragraph or another sentence. But he gives us just enough that we can come to the conclusion, our own conclusion. Right. If he tells us everything, what are we learning? What are we concluding? Are we growing in, in, in understanding and relationship to God? It, would that be a correct statement, do you think? I think it's correct. Because we, we have to think. You can, you can be spoon-fed information and you won't remember it for five minutes. But if you have to dig it out yourself, 
you'll hold on to it a lot more, a lot better. And this is the way relationships are. You, you can't have a relationship by somebody giving it to you. You have to work at it. That looks like a great big huge cave, doesn't it? You've been looking at that thinking, what in the world is that? We couldn't go right up to it. It was, it was elevated from where we were, and they don't allow you to climb up there. But this is supposed to be the cave where David hid out. I've talked to some other people, and they said, well, there's some other caves around there that are larger and are probably more likely to be the one. But that's in a good place to bring tourists. So who, who really knows? But this place is, it's got caves all over it. I'll go back up here. I didn't show you on the map. Uh-oh, that's the last bell. Oh, there we are. Nope, too far. It's not on the map, but up here uh, north of this is Qumran. What happened at Qumran? That's where they found the scrolls. And there are caves all over up there, and they've got it. You can, you can walk in, and they've got handrails, and you walk certain places and stop, and you can't go any farther because they don't know what all's out there that's yet to be discovered, but you can look and see where the caves are. This is a place that's just got a lot of caves. As a matter of fact, down along the Dead Sea, there are warning signs not to approach because uh, there are caverns in the ground, and it caves in, and you just, you just fall through. So you've got to be careful. This whole area is uh, like a big honeycomb. You wouldn't think that to look at it because it just looks like a desolate bunch of rocks. Um, there's uh, the springs that are just adjacent to the cave and that's what the whole area looks like and I'm glad to say that is not how we got around the whole time because uh, riding camels is not very comfortable can you pick me out in there I like this picture because it makes me look small but uh, I'm second from the back that's uh, Liam in front of me, we're riding a camel. I forget what the camel's name, but one of those camels was named Matilda. So that's where the high ho Matilda comes from. But this is, this is the area. This is the place. This is what it was like. Well, it's what it's like now. I can't really say what it was like 3,000 years ago, but pretty rough country now. So anybody got anything before we close? We better, we better bring this to an end. Please remember to keep Rhonda in your prayers. We don't want anything bad to happen to her. Bless your hearts. Love you. Talk to you later.